You're listening to episode 150 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hello, storytellers. Before I introduce today's wonderful guest, I have an exciting Patreon-related announcement. I am adding early access to interviews for our super storytellers who sign up for our Patreon membership to show tangible support at the $8.88 tier or higher. That $8.88 tier is called Silky Chickens with Balloons. Why? Because they're awesome. So how exactly does this early access work? These files are just the edited interview itself. To give you the earliest access possible, I won't be adding the introduction, the ending, or the jingle music that's usually stitched in during post-production. Depending on how my schedule looks for the month, you'll get access to interviews as early as a month in advance. If I'm super busy for that month, I may upload the interview a few days before the official air date. But no matter what, you'll always get to hear all upcoming episodes before anyone else does, and that's a guarantee. Okay, so right now, Susie Townsend's podcast episode is set to release on Thursday, November 29th, and we prepared a 14-page presentation of the top six killer query letters that stood out to Susie along with personal notes on why she loves each of them. That PDF is also available on November 29th as a downloadable bonus on Susie's show notes page. If you'd love access to that downloadable PDF right now, along with the audio file of Susie reading through several of her top query letters and explaining why it stands out to her, head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea to sign up at the $8.88 tier or higher. And in FYI, I'm also releasing Maureen Johnson and actor Doreen Missick's podcast episodes for the early access files as well. If you're wondering how you can best show your support, this is honestly the most helpful way for us right now. Head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea and sign up at the $8.88 tier or higher and you'll receive these early access interviews on top of all the other cool benefits in this tier like access to deleted audio from the original podcast conversations, exclusive behind-the-scenes footage, pictures, and commentary that you can't find anywhere else, monthly book unboxing videos, and more fun perks. Again, that's patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. A friendly reminder, there is absolutely no obligation or pressure if you're unable to show tangible support at this time for any reason. If you'd still love to show support in another way, I would be so grateful if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our show and give us a rating and a review. From what I hear, it helps our show become more visible to new listeners, and honestly, every bit helps to get the word out about 88 Cups of Tea, so thank you so much in advance. Okay, let's dive right into this episode. So today we have with us the incredible Livia Blackburn. Livia is a New York Times bestselling young adult and fantasy author. Her works include Midnight Thief, Daughter of Dusk, Rosemarked, which was an Amazon Best Book of the Month and Yalsa Teen's Top 10 nominee, and her newly released book, Umbertouched, which we talk a whole lot about today. Not only is Livia an amazing author, but she also has her PhD in cognitive neuroscience and is a kick-ass mom of an adorable two-year-old. 
Today, Livia tells her story of how she first fell in love with storytelling and her journey to becoming a full-time writer. She gives us a snapshot of what you will discover in Umbertouched, the second book in her Rosemark series, and she shares her wisdom on the importance of critique partners, beta readers, and sensitivity readers. We talk about both the exciting and the difficult moments in her life that inspires her writing every day, why it's important to keep your social ties strong with family and friends, how she sets dedicated time for her writing while raising a two-year-old and growing her career, and so much more. Be sure to head over to Livia's show notes page because she was so thoughtful to share a really helpful writing prompt for our listeners. To download her writing prompt, head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Livia dash Blackburn and scroll to the bottom for the download button. Let's get right into it because I am so excited to share this conversation with you. Hey, everyone. We have Livia Blackburn with us today. Livia, how are you? I'm so excited to have you on 88 Cups of Tea. Oh, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you on. And I'd love to get chatting about your background, how you fell in love with storytelling. And of course, your book. Actually, wait, today is Tuesday. It came out today, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. How lucky are we (laughs) that you got to spend time with us on your book, Baby's Birthday. Thank you. Before we jump into your story and the background and the inspiration of your series, love to learn about how you first fell in love with storytelling. Ah, okay. Well, that is, um, you know, it goes so far back. (laughs) Yeah, I I was a bookworm growing up, you know, always reading. I remember writing, I think I wrote my first real story in maybe fifth grade or sixth grade. Like we had an assignment and I I ended up writing this 10-page story and made my mom type it up. So in high school, I actually ended up writing what would be the first iteration of my debut novel. Um, and that, if we want to get to that later, it's it was to get out of a camping requirement. So so there's a long story um, behind that. Uh, and then, but, you know, I went to school for science and, you know, you get busy in school. So, you know, from about uh, high school on through graduate school, about 10 years, I didn't do any writing or actually much reading at all. But then, you know, what ha- actually ended up happening was I was waiting for a bus at Harvard Medical School, and it was cold outside. So I went into a bookstore. They happened to have a Twilight display on there. And so I just picked it up and started reading and got addicted and read that series over the weekend and kind of remembered, oh, yeah, I used to love writing. Then I started writing again. And now we're here. Wow. Okay. So, you know, when you mentioned that you had your mom type up your stories for you, mm-hmm. so was she pretty supportive about the arts? Like, how was that like? Um, because I, I feel like there are some parents uh, who are very encouraging of the arts in their children and others who are not so much. Right. And I know you went into um, neuroscience, which is, oh my gosh, you're so brilliant. I'm like, oh my goodness, my mom would be so proud of me if I were a neuroscientist. Were you the one who fell in love with science or was that something that was more so encouraged by your family? I know my family pushed pharmacy on me and then business right. and begged me to do anything but the arts. Let's be real here. <laughs> That's my family. Right. So how was that like for you to transition? That's a great question. And, you know, I'm Chinese American. So, you know, there's a big emphasis on academics and everything. Growing up, I think my parents, they're like writing's good, but not a good career to have. And, you know, it is true that, you know, making a living as a writer is hard. And so, you know, they kind of encouraged me to find something where it would be easier to get a job. I was good at science. uh, And I think, you know, 
I don't want to, I don't think not just my parents that were putting the pressure. I think, you know, just kind of growing up in the Asian culture, you kind of expected to be one or an engineer, right? And so I just kind of went on autopilot on that path. And, you know, I think being like an Asian kind of nerdy overachiever, you know, it, it was very like easy to just kind of put my passions away and, you know, do what I was supposed to do, especially when school got hard and stuff. So yeah, it, it did kind of take an adjustment and it took kind of a, a quarter life crisis, basically, you know, when I was around like 26 and I was like, wait a minute, you know, I like reading, I like writing. And that's when I started writing along the side. And by the time I wrote my novel and sold it and my parents could tell, and I could tell that, you know, I was much happier writing than working in science at that point, then they were supportive of me switching. Thank you for sharing that. Do you mind going into that camping story? Because I'm like, wait, what? Because I love camping. So I'm just like, wait, you want to avoid camping? I'll do anything to go camping. So I'm totally opposite. Yeah, yeah. My husband loves camping, but I I am the complete opposite. You know, like I, uh, I like my running water. I like my toilet. (laughs) I like being away from bugs. Um, Unfortunately, I went to this progressive, like independent school where you know, it was called experiential education. You know, they thought, you know, we would build character and stuff. But, um, you know, after several years of, you know, going on these trips, I was like, you know, I think my character is fine. <laughs> I don't need to build it anymore. I just want to get out of this, you know, because like we would go for on camp, like five day camping trips without showering. And that was just, you know, too much. Another option, which was usually people didn't even know about it, but I kind of like found it. And it was like, you could propose your own project for experiential education. So I was like, okay, I'll just um, I'll write a novel instead. And that's like camping in your head. <laughs> and, you know, I totally didn't expect it to pass, but, you know, they, they bought it. So in 10th grade, I wrote maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 pages of what would eventually through many, many, many changes become Midnight Thief. That's kind of crazy that you were able to maintain those pages. Like how much of it did you change? I pretty much changed everything. So that original novel, Midnight Thief is about a thief named Cairo, who goes off and has adventures. My first draft was about a thief named Lana, who discovered she had magical powers and became a sorcerer. (laughs) I mean, it was a really bad book. You know, it was written in 10th grade to get out of camping. And it wasn't incredibly compelling, but I did have one English teacher give me some really good advice, which was, Lana as a character is not that compelling, but she does have this best friend, Kyra, who is really interesting. So that kind of stuck with me. And so 10 years later, after I read Twilight and decided I wanted to write again, I decided, oh, why don't I take Kyra and take that world, maybe a few more other characters, and I gave Kyra her entirely new story. This all sparked and started the inspiration was because you wanted to avoid camping, which is incredible. And I love that you shared that story. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Okay, now I'm curious because I know that since Umber Touch just came out, would you be all right giving us a snapshot of that so listeners know an overview of what to expect from your story? And I know that's part of your series, Rosemart. And also FYI, Olivia, we have uh, one of our listeners, Desiree Filardo. She's so sweet. She's been a longtime listener. And in our private Facebook group, I hosted this really fun book swap last year for the holidays. We chose random names to be partners. And so she was my partner, Desiree. And she mailed me your book, Rosemart. So it was such a coincidence. And then so when I mentioned to the Facebook group that you'd be on the interview, she's like all caps. 
oh my God, I love her. And I loved Rosemark. Oh my gosh. And like, she's so happy you're going to be on the podcast. So just wanted to let you know, you've got fans here. Uh, well, if it's Desiree that I'm thinking about uh, that I've met at events, I yeah, she, she's awesome. She's, she's so sweet. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. That's amazing that you remember her. That's so cool. Um, I'm sure she's going to be thrilled hearing this. So that's awesome. Thank you. So um, if you could give us a snapshot of Umber Touch, and I'm sure that also means a snapshot of Rosemark first, and then we'll do deeper from there? Well, so the way I usually pitch Rosemark is in terms of four questions, because, you know, I try to describe the story and it's like too convoluted. I've never been able to actually do it correctly. Uh, So the four questions are, um, first one, what if you're a healer, you know, and you're very good at that, but one day you become sick so that not only you're going to die, but now your touch instead of healing people kills people. The second question is, what if you're a soldier who's been captured and tortured and now you finally get a chance for revenge but to do so you have to give up your memories and your very self the third question is what if while you have no memory you fall in love with someone you used to despise and the fourth question what if then you get your memory back so that's kind of rosemark in a nutshell okay it's called rosemark because there's a disease in the world it's called rose plague and it's very deadly they also get a rash on their skin, which are called rosemarks. So in the first book, Ziva is rosemark and Daenerys is a soldier. And they band together to go into an enemy army. And how about Umber Touched? Yeah, so after Rosemark, everything kind of went downhill and <laughs> nothing went right. So Umber Touched then is about Ziva and Daenerys going back to their own people and they're preparing for war now. So they're preparing to fight for their lives and also at the same time they're dealing with the aftermath of their missions. They're budding romance and also Daenerys is trying to figure out his torn loyalties after having made friends in both armies. And Ziva as well continues to deal with the issues of her own mortality because again, she's still sick and will probably die at some point. I would really love to know where this inspiration came from. So there's several inspirations as uh, most of my books usually have. Did you ever watch the Battlestar Galactica? No, but I know of it though. It's super popular. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I got super obsessed with it at one point. Like at one point my husband and I, that was like all we did, you know, we just watched <laughs> it. And, you know, I was worried that at some point, you know, we'd stop watching it and we'd look look at each other and you know we wouldn't know what we had in common anymore um so yeah so uh Balsar Galactica got me really into the idea of sleeper agents which is like secret agents who don't know they're secret agents because they don't remember um and so you know they're in an army you know making friends with the enemy not realizing that it's actually the enemy so I really like that idea and I wanted to do something with it the second inspiration is I watched a play about the Hawaiian leper colony Molokai and that got me thinking about not just terminal illness, but and not just the illness aspect, but the social aspect of it, where you're sick, you're already dealing with your health problems. And again, you're also dealing with social isolation, having to go through this without your family. And again, that got me thinking, and that was inspiration for Rose Plague in my story. And to piggyback off of that, I kind of had an emotional connection to the issue of health because at the time I was writing I was also trying to start a family with my husband and you know it's one thing so you know oh yeah well you know we'll stop birth control and it'll uh, happen right away Mm -hmm. Um, no right yeah no no you know it's a one year turn to two turn to Mm -hmm. three and you know like I I had a lot of emotions that I was dealing with you know just the, the general like why me you know all that stuff and also you know, as a, as a person of faith, too, you know, kind of issues of what that means, like in terms of my relationship with God and all the questions all, all come bubbling up. 
I drew on that for Ziva's emotional journey. Oh, wow. Okay, so do you mind me jumping in and asking, when you're going through this while writing this, it's obviously a lot that you're going through emotionally, like you just shared. The thing is, how do you, as the writer, balance that and not get too emotionally exhausted, I guess you can say, right? Right, right. yeah. Well, and that's why I love writing fantasy, because I was able to remove it enough from my own experience, you know, so Ziva wasn't struggling with the same thing I was, you know, she was playing with Rose Play. And so I was able to draw from my emotions there, but it wasn't so close that it hurt to write. That's what I love about fantasy is because we can kind of write about the real world, but kind of remove it. So it's almost a little safer emotionally to do it. How are you today? Like, were you able to have the child that you were hoping for with your husband? Do you have a family now? Like, where are you at right now with that? If that, if you don't mind sharing it. (laughs) So what happened was I signed the contract for Rosemart and I think, a month later, I found out I was pregnant. <gasps> so, oh my god! Yeah. Congratulations! Uh, what uh, a crazy you. news! That's amazing. Yeah, so she's two now. Um, <gasps> so it was actually pretty crazy because so during my first trimester, I was drafting Rosemark, the first draft of it. And so I was like, I would be in bed dictating into my microphone because I was like trying not to throw up and like I was too oh tired to sit up at my computer. <laughs> and then you know it was a rush to hurry through the like the copy edits before the baby came out. And then there was Umbertouched, which was due five months after my baby was born, which was probably the worst draft I've ever written. Now, I mean, this week is also my daughter's second birthday. <gasps> oh my gosh, happy birthday to your daughter. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh. And forever, you will always remember that as the anniversary of when you heard back about your book. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Livy, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> Thank That's you. That's so Thank exciting. You. Okay, now you just like open Pandora's box because our listeners here, there's a lot of listeners who are moms and a lot of them are also first-time moms. And actually, we have a few. We actually have one particular listener I'm thinking of who is about to have her baby anytime. Wow. Yeah, so I'm like wondering, did she already have her baby? But by the time your episode comes out, maybe she's already had her baby. But there's one thing that they do talk about, you know, whether it's in the Facebook group or they email me via the newsletter. I mean, I don't like to use the word balancing, but I do feel like, yes, it is a balancing act. Uh, I know there's some people from the school of thought that there's no such thing as balancing. If you just want to do it, then you do it. If you want to write, just write. But then I, I, I do see how difficult it is to raise kids. Like, how is that like for you? And maybe that could give some inspiration to our listeners. Right. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) That's a a great topic to go on. So I guess I'll preface this all first by saying, you know, if you're a new mom trying to write and trying to get all that stuff done, you know, go easy on yourself first, because it's so easy to kind of look around and think that all the other writer moms have it all together. And, you know, going like under the lid, it it, is totally not. There's a lot of treading water going on. And I had another writer friend who said, told me, you know, go easy on yourself, give yourself some freedom to not go for everything. And that was really helpful for me. So keeping that in mind, I'll I'll go into practical bits. And I think, you know, what you'll find out as you have a baby is that what works at one age changes drastically at another age. Ooh, that I've never heard of. That's going to be a quotable, Olivia. Okay, awesome. But yes, sorry to interrupt, but that was so good. So, I mean, for me, the first three months were just like, yeah, there, there was nothing really 
being done really well there. Dictating helped a lot. So I dictate with a digital voice recorder. So I would dictate while breastfeeding. And of course, you know, that works when she's younger, but when she gets older, you know, she'll start grabbing at the microphone and stuff. So that doesn't work anymore. So um, cute. Yeah. <laughs> a little annoying when you're trying to get one. She's like, Mama, I want to add some characters in there. Let me grab at the dictator. Right. You know, and, and I'm thinking, you know, like I had all these, I was dictating scenes of like war and death. And <gasps> oh like, my God. <laughs> like one month old. Hopefully I didn't screw her up that much. One other thing that helps is working off of an outline. So a lot of times now, if you get used to working with like 10 minute sprints and stuff like that, you know, there's a great app. A lot of people use it like Forest, you know, or the Pomodoro method. Even when I have large chunks of time, I'm writing in 10 minute sprints. And so then it's nice then, you know, when your kid is doing something else, you know, you have 10 minutes, then you get used to, you know, being able to be productive for 10 minutes. And being able to do that, it helps a lot to have an outline, a really detailed outline. I did do an outline for Umber Touch before I gave birth. And so I was able to kind of write scenes faster afterwards. Bottom line, though, is that you're still going to be able to get the majority of your work done when the baby is either napping or when you have babysitting. There's little tricks here and there, but it still comes down to, you know, baby being asleep or getting childcare. I know moms that go to the YMCA and write during the free two hours of childcare they have there. I'm extremely lucky to have my mom come over maybe three afternoons a week so I can write. Wow, that is so sweet of your mom. Yeah, yeah. But let's be real, Asian moms are pretty amazing and they really yeah, they, love their they, grandkids. They will sacrifice everything for their grandkids. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it really is awesome. And my husband is great too. Like he took on a lot of the housework when I was on deadline. Yeah, I'm very lucky. And even then, Slowing down is an option when your kids are younger. Right now, I'm writing my next project on spec just because it's easier on my family. You know, there's different seasons of life. You don't have to feel like you have to always fit the mold. You know, just find what works for you and your family. Do you mind me jumping in asking what do you mean by that? Like you're writing the next story on spec and that means it's easier for the family. Do you mind clarifying that? Yes, yes. So once you're with the house, a lot of authors just start selling on proposal. You know, Rosemark Dye had the first, actually that one I, I sold as a two book deal. So, you know, I gave them an outline and a synopsis and, you know, 30, 40 pages or something. And then from that, we had the contract. And then from there, we had the deadline and the release date already on the calendar by the time I started writing. You can also sell things on spec, which is you write the entire manuscript and then you go to a publisher. Amazing. Thank you for clarifying that. Back to the writing aspect of it. Your story just sounds so layered and so in-depth. Is there research involved or just purely imagination? Uh, so there is some research involved. The, the good thing about fantasy is that, you know, you can, if the research doesn't work out, you can always make stuff up. So I did a lot of research about, you know, ancient military tactics, some of which I kind of put into the story. And research for fantasy is more for like generating cool ideas than for like compared to writing historical fiction where you're trying to be accurate. There's a medicine aspect because Eva's a healer. So I did a lot of reading into ancient medicine, you know, what they could do, what they couldn't do. And there's, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing what, what people were doing back then. And then there's also like gruesome stories about, you know, they did surgery, they amputated limbs without anesthesia. And, oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, 
draw a lot on that. I also have a memory potion that plays a big role in Rosemart, where Diva is taking away Denise's memory so he can go into the army and be a sleeper agent. And from that, I, I uh, drew on my own knowledge of learning and memory from grad school and also talked to some of my old classmates. So the potion, you know, it's not completely scientifically possible, but I tried to make it as close as I could. Oh my gosh, I love that accuracy or that effort, I would say. Okay, so now with Umber Touched specifically, do you run into anything super incredibly difficult that you felt like you were stuck and had to dance around for quite a while before being able to break through? Uh, yeah, Umber Touched was, um, I find second books very tough. So Daughter of Dust, the second book of my first series, and Umber Touched, I found very tough as well. And I mean, part of it was, you know, just juggling a baby on the side as well. And also just, you know, so the the Rosemark series, I wanted to write a standalone. But then I was writing the synopsis, and it was clear that it wasn't going to fit in one book. So I found a good kind of stopping point, maybe about two-thirds of the way through the Rosemark series. The Rosemark manuscript made that Rosemark, and then so Umber Touch was going to be the last one-third of it. So it was obviously less well-developed, and at that point I was like, oh, I'll think of something to put in. And then you, know, I, you actually have the book, and you're like, oh, what do I put in now? So my first draft was actually really, really short of unattached because I just ran out of things to say. So it was like maybe 50,000 words or so, and the final draft is like 96,000. You know, I wrote that first draft, and then there was a lot of looking at the manuscript and figuring out, okay, what am I missing here? And it was like looking for how the characters need to grow. In the first draft, Ziva was not active enough, so thinking up another side plot line for her. It was clear that the first draft needed something. It was just trying to figure out what she needed. Okay, so when you say that it was very clear that she needed something, mm-hmm. do you have critique partners that you can trust? Or who knows, like maybe your husband does some readovers for you and it's like, hey, maybe this is this. Or like, right. you know, do you have trusted friend that you really are like, okay, I know she reads a lot of books. She's not a writer, but she reads a lot and she's a fantastic reader and I trust her judgment. Or is it an editor that you run through things with or your agent? Like how then do you know... Are, how, are you able to like figure that out? That was whatever right. that was missing for your character. Yeah. Uh, so that's a great question. And um, I think I'm kind of uh, different from a lot of authors in that I use a huge amount of readers. So I have a weekly writing group, like five people, and I show them parts of my drafts every two weeks. And then from there, there's my editor as well. But while my editor is looking at it, I also use beta readers. And those I use like 10 to 20 beta readers. And those tend to be general readers, you know, friends or book bloggers um, who I've worked with in the past. And so their feedback doesn't quite replace editorial feedback. So editors, they give you a vision. So, you know, they'll look at your novel and tell you like what to do with it, you know, where to take it. Beta readers, they tend to read it and just tell you their reaction to it. Okay. So you get two different types of feedback over there. And what I like to do is I like to take the beta reader feedback and that's kind of like my pool of ideas to draw from in order to respond to my editor's notes. I feel like, you know, my brain is not enough, so I need other people's ideas working for me. And also sensitivity readers later on. Oh, um, wow. Special, like I I had an expert reader for military strategy and also for PTSD and for... (sighs) terminal illness. Okay. All right. Now I'm going to start hitting you with the technical questions. How'd you know who to reach out to? Were you Google researching military strategists, like consultant that you can reach out to and just call their number? Was it that straightforward or was it a little bit more sleuthing? 
I mean, it's a combination. So the military one was just a friend who was in the military and did a lot of reading, you know, just to do a reality check on, on my fight scene. You have a great pool of people, by the way. That's awesome. <laughs> it, it is very helpful. Like I said, I, I like to, my, my brain doesn't feel like it's enough sometimes, especially with a two-year-old. It's good to emphasize. Yeah, for sensitivity readers, one I got off, um, so there's a database of sensitivity readers, which I can't remember at the moment. I'm sure I'll remember as soon as this podcast ends. And then for PTSD, I just did a call on social media for people who had experience with combat PTSD. And mm-hmm. I had another friend, you know, a Facebook friend, a high school friend. So she both, she had PTSD and her boyfriend was a veteran with combat PTSD. And she was kind enough to read over the manuscript and give me your thoughts as well. Wow. Okay. So when you get feedback from your sensitivity readers, how much of it do you weigh out? Yeah. And that, that'll depend greatly on what exactly they're saying. Right. So there's also the question of, you know, when to get your sensitivity reader, you know, if you get it earlier on, then you'd be more able to incorporate their changes, but then you might have questions later. And that if you do it later, they'll see the finished product. But what if they say that this entire chunk of the plot is wrong or something? So it's kind of, you know, you have to decide the give and take there. For terminal illness, my sensitivity reader only had, you know, like small notes here and there, which were pretty easy to incorporate just within what I had. My PTSD sensitivity reader was actually super helpful because I ended up putting a whole new set of scenes in there based on her feedback. I had this part in the story where I needed another storyline. So her feedback was super useful. I just added that in. Wow. Okay. So that's very helpful to know just in case, because I know there are uh, quite a few listeners who've mentioned, you know, they're curious. Sensitivity writers, they can, well, it, they seem kind of scary sometimes because you're like, oh no, you know, they're going to tell me that my story's all wrong. But in my experience um, has been really positive with sensitivity readers. And it hasn't been just, you know, you got this wrong, but they've, all of them um, have made my story a lot richer and a lot stronger and a lot more authentic. Uh, so actually, I really enjoyed the experience. It's not some kind of like it's not someone standing over your shoulder, you know, with a ruler. It's someone you know actually adding to your story and giving it an extra bit of realism. This is so fascinating. Just about how much credit you give to your community of people, your your team, and this includes beta readers to the critique group. How did you find yours specifically? Was this something that you were a part of for years, or did they come find you? How does that work? Yeah, so I've been with my critique group for nine years now. Wait, was this during like Midnight Thief? This was. This was while I was writing Midnight. <gasps> oh my gosh, they've been with you for a long time then. They, yeah. Um, okay, it's family. That's amazing. They really are family, yeah. And so I found them through SCBWI. Uh, the New England SCBWI had a bulletin board. And, you know, I just emailed them and hooked up with them. And there was already a group going on, but they were looking for a new member. So I hopped in. And that was in Boston. So now I video chat in. You know, and through the years, you know, there's been people who, you know, took time off or, or left the group to focus on other things. And we just, you know, bring in new members as they go. But yeah, I'm very lucky to have one that's lasted so long. Oh my gosh, that is really inspiring. I know there's a lot of listeners who are also SCBWI members. So that is very, very good to know. Uh, I didn't realize that you can find critique partners through that, like a bulletin board. So that's really cool that they provide that resource or just at least that space. It depends on the local chapter. Like some chapters do it and some chapters don't. Okay, I gotcha. So I want to go back to Umber Touch and I love, I know we were talking about like difficult scenes. How about writing your favorite scene? Uh, yeah, yes. Well, I have a favorite series of scenes, if that's cheating or not. Oh my gosh, yes. Please share. 
Okay. So, you know, throughout the book, Ziva is struggling with her mortality. She's struggling with uh, what it means to be a healer and like how much she should use her talents for good versus for evil. She's struggling with what the goddess wants her to do. Like the goddess wants her to be a healer, has commanded her to use her talents for good and not to, you know, use her healing knowledge to kill people or poison people. And she believes in that. But on the other hand, you know, the goddess let her get sick. So, you know, why should she listen to her goddess? And so she's, you know, dealing with all these like moral questions. Eventually, there's a series of scenes where I put her out on her own and you know, she's without her friends and she's wandering the wilderness. She's wandering a battlefield and she runs into soldiers who are hurt and she has to decide with each one what she's going to do. They react in different ways. And, you know, she makes lots of mistakes. She gets hurt. She hurts people. You know, she also helps people. And by the end of it, okay, I don't think this is too spoiler. There starts to be rumors that there's a goddess wandering the fields so in that case she it's like she almost like transforms into a goddess herself as she's struggling with her own questions with her own goddess especially there's this one moment when Denia sees her after the sequence and he sees her and he's like wow she she does look like a goddess and that maybe is one of my favorite parts where did you draw your inspiration with this goddess character through my own health problems I was kind of struggling a lot with you know as a person of faith how do I relate to god when things aren't going Right. And so I knew I wanted a religious aspect in the book to kind of have Ziva mirror these same struggles. And, you know, I, I decided to make it a goddess because, you know, because it's a lot more fun. <laughs> um, and yeah, I just just kind of grew from there. Would you mind sharing what was your most difficult situation that you've ever had to face overall in life? And, and how were you able to get yourself through or past that situation I think there's two things on top of my head. <laughs> Funny enough, like they both inspire my writing. Uh, so one would be, yeah, I think it, it was a very difficult, you know, three years, you know, going through different fertility treatments. You know, you go through all these procedures and it's, uh, yeah, you know, it doesn't work. And I remember, especially like there was this one time when, um, you know, I was doing IVF and. I go in just for a regular checkup. You know, it wasn't even you know, time to harvest eggs or, or something big. But I, I went in and um, it turns out that I I was progressing so badly that uh, they had to cancel the cycle. Um, and it was totally unexpected because, you know, it was we weren't even like like nobody canceled at that point. You know, and I, I just remember um, I was I had to. Uh, call my husband. Um, I was there by myself. I had to call my husband to um, make the decision, like, should we go on or not? And so I was um, outside the sitting room on my phone, you know, trying not to cry in public. And uh, I ended up having to text my husband because I couldn't talk. Um, and yeah, uh, so you know, there, there were some hard moments there. Uh, but, you know, the good thing is that, you know, I was very well supported. Um, emotionally like through throughout that entire thing you know I, I was very lucky my, my husband was great uh and I, I had family um so you know that was just kind of you know you you find hope and you keep going um and you know you think of your other options and so forth uh yeah uh that's one um the another one which wasn't it, it was like a shorter thing but it also kind of informed writing was um, I think in my early 20s I was briefly in an emotionally abusive relationship um you know where you have someone just kind of telling you that you're worthless all the time 
in. Oh, wow. Was this during college? Uh, this was, yes, this was during college. <gasps> okay, I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, well, thankfully that, that was, um, and again, like, I'm very lucky uh, because, you know, my parents had a good relationship growing up, so it did not take very long for me to recognize kind of recognize that. Um, what actually happened was we went to visit my parents and kind of like seeing him through my parents' eyes, then uh, something clicked and I was able to get out of it. Oh, wow. Okay, because I know in a lot of circumstances, it's very difficult, uh, number one, to recognize it, and number two, even if you do, it's usually very difficult for many people to get out of a situation still um, because there's a lot of emotional ties and there's mind games that the other person is playing and it's very difficult to break out of that. So I'm so happy to hear that you were able to pull away and and get out in time. Um, So this might be a little bit of a difficult question and it's kind of like a hard one to answer for anyone that may be in an abusive relationship. And I know, again, we are, none of us are therapists here. You are not, I am not. And I want to make that very clear to our listeners, but maybe from your own experience or from yourself, looking back and reflecting, what is something that you would advise if it's like perhaps your daughter growing up, if not would this ever happens, what would you advise this person to do? Um, so well, one thing that I think, oops, I started fiddling with something loud. Um, all right, uh, one thing uh, that I found I think is really important is art, and that really um, my experience helped me realize was the importance of social ties. Uh, so, you know, it was you know, because I still kept in touch with my parents and my friends that I was able to realize what was going on. Uh, so I think, you know, I don't know if... It depends on what, at what point you are in the relationship. Um, I would tell my daughter when dating just to make sure don't focus on that person uh, while ignore to the point of ignoring your friends and your family. Keep your friends with you. Um, and a huge red flag is you know if your significant other is doing things that you find that you don't want to tell your friends or your family. You know that's a big find yourself, you know, hiding things about your relationship. If you find yourself making excuses for him, then, you know, that's a problem. I know that wasn't an easy question. And again, I know it's, it might be a little bit uncomfortable because we're both not therapists, but I do always find that it helps when there's someone that you feel close to or you look up to and they've gone through something similar. And then, you know, to hear like what they would have done differently or like, you know, what advice they would give to a close loved one. I think that's always very impactful. So I appreciate that. Um, and now, Livia, I want to end this off on a very high note. What are you most excited about right now? I'm excited to you know, get back to writing, I think. There's been a lot of work leading up to launch and stuff, and so exciting to get that out the door. But it'll be really nice to you know, just sit down again with my notebook and you know start spinning stories again. Oh, that's so exciting. I'm getting goosebumps for you. It's probably feeling like you're breathing again, yeah? Uh, it, it, it's nice to, to get back into that spot. You know, I definitely have times when I'm like, I don't want to write anymore. <laughs> Right now, I miss it. Oh my gosh. Okay, that's a good place to be. Are there any books that you can recommend to our our listeners that you advise them to read to improve their craft? Uh, Let's see. There's, um, I recently read The Anatomy of Story, I think, by John Truby. I like that one. There's also, like, I forget, I think Story by Robert McGee or Richard McGee or 
That one's good too. Yeah, those are the two I've read recently. Olivia, you've been amazing. Can you please tell the listeners where they can find you on social media to say hi and to thank you for your time? Uh, yes, uh, I'm most active on Instagram these days. It's LK Blackburn. And Twitter, I'm also LK Blackburn. I'm on Facebook as well. I think that's about it. Amazing. That's, that is <laughs> awesome. I can't imagine you being able to also deal with all the social media because I can't even handle the social media and I don't even have that many. So it's just <laughs> sad, but you are so cool. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Livia. You are so wonderful. And I loved this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And that wraps up our episode with Livia Blackburn. Livia, I had the best time chatting with you about your new book, Umbertouched, and about your craft. Thank you for such a thoughtful conversation packed with so much wisdom. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to drop by and say hi to Livia over on Twitter and Instagram at LKBlackburn. I was just scrolling through her Instagram and oh my god, her bookstagram posts are gorgeous, so definitely go check her out. To check out Livia's show notes page and download her writing prompt and have access to all the resources and books she mentioned in her episode, head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Livia dash Blackburn. Okay, so right now, Susie Townsend's podcast episode is set to release on Thursday, November 29th, and we prepared a 14-page presentation of the top six killer query letters that stood out to Susie along with personal notes on why she loves each of them. That PDF is also available on November 29th as a downloadable bonus on Suzy's show notes page. If you'd love access to that downloadable PDF right now, along with the audio file of Suzy reading through several of her top query letters and explaining why it stands out to her, head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea to sign up at the $8.88 tier or higher. And in FYI, I'm also releasing Maureen Johnson and actor Dorian Missick's podcast episodes for the early access files as well. If you're wondering how you can best show your support, this is honestly the most helpful way for us right now. Head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea and sign up at the $8.88 tier or higher and you'll receive these early access interviews on top of all the other cool benefits in this tier like access to deleted audio from the original podcast conversations, exclusive behind-the-scenes footage, pictures, and commentary that you can't find anywhere else, monthly book unboxing videos, and more fun perks. Again, that's patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. If you'd still love to show support in another way, I would be so grateful if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our show and give us a rating and a review. From what I hear, it helps our show become more visible to new listeners, and honestly, every bit helps to get the word out about 88 Cups of Tea, so thank you so much in advance. Have a great week, and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye! Bye!